Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. There's some things that are happening. Uh, UBS, for example, uh, is down almost 5%. So we want to get you uh, some analysis here with Allison Williams, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst, Global Banks and Asset uh, Manager. So basically, the, the, there was a fourth quarter earnings miss. It did announce a buyback of up to $1 billion in shares this year. So you can make an argument, Allison, there's something for the bulls, there's something for the bears. What was there for you? So I think, uh, you know, Investors got as much as they could today. Uh, you know, the issue is this is a long, it's going to be a long uh, time frame for this deal to execute, which I think um, investors should have been prepared for. They may have wanted a bit more. Um, the one negative thing for the outlook is that 2024 estimates are likely going to come down a little bit because, um, you know, the returns are going to be lower. But that's because I think. UBS is trying to be aggressive in, um, you know, pulling forward those costs. So they did upsize the costs on a gross basis, but they're going to invest those. So not falling to the bottom line. So um, perhaps some disappointment there. They did reiterate their sort of three year target. They gave a longer term target that was uh, in line with the high end before Credit Suisse. So I think those were all positive. The buybacks also a little bit better than expected. The big positive news was um, 27% increase in dividend, though also, as you said, fourth quarter, you know, not so much um, great things going on there. So the, the miss was on costs. Their adjusted costs fell. Their integration costs or the restructuring costs were much bigger than expected. The wealth flows moderated a little bit, and the investment bank lost money. Allison, what is the new UBS here post Credit Suisse and full disclosure, I'm a client of UBS. I used to work at Credit Suisse, so I'm all over the Swiss stuff here. But what's where does UBS want to be now that they've acquired Credit Suisse? What are their ambitions vis-a-vis -a, -vis a, a global financial institution? So I don't think that the big picture um, strategy has changed much for them, right? So they their focus is on wealth. Um, you know, they're the premier global wealth manager. They added some assets, they added some relationships with Credit Suisse. In the investment bank, um, again, they're still focused on equities. So even though um, profit disappointed revenue came in about in line, so that's that's a positive thing on the equities trading side of things. They did add, you know, some incremental um, ads. There were some numbers around the uh, traders uh, that Bloomberg News reported. We obviously look at uh, the top line of revenue, um, you know, they're, they kept the M&A and the research areas were the areas that they added to. Um, and those areas did pretty well in the quarter. So what else do you need to hear to get more confidence in, in all of this? We need to just like a kind of hold and wait for two more years, basically. I think it is like a show me, right? So I think mm -hmm. it's going to be a step by step. So um, Armadi, as, as you know, said this morning that 
Um, you know, they might sacrifice a little bit of revenue because they are focused on profitability. They're focused on doing things right. Um, so again, like those are the types of things that you have to have confidence. He has uh, done a big turnaround at UBS before, uh, but I think that it is the kind of thing where it's like quarter by quarter investors have to start to see, you know, some of the, um, you know, some support for these estimates. Another target they put out there this morning was 100 billion per year for the next two years in net new wealth assets. So I think that's a, a pretty good target. Um, but again, we saw some slowing in the fourth quarter. Some of that was uh, mandates leaving with Credit Suisse relationship managers. Still pretty stable, but I think investors will want to see, you know, more. So, you know, over the next few quarters, UBS delivering on its plans. So, Allison, just, I mean, you cover everything, the all the global big investment banks, commercial banks here. Is the global bank, is that just left to the Morgan Stanleys, the Goldman Sachs's, or whatever? It doesn't seem like anybody in Asia, anybody in Europe can compete against the J.P. Morgans of the world. So, Paul, it's, I mean, it's really been over the last decade, you know, ever since you left the business, but <laughs> exactly. over, it was Paul. It was over all the Paul. last decade, you know, the U.S. <laughs> Bank just, uh, fall, you know, really making those market share gains. Uh, you know, Cre Credit Suisse was, is sort of the latest to, um, you know, provide some, provide some gains to those U.S. players, if, if you will. Uh, keep in mind that, uh, you know, that sale from UBS follows them exiting prime brokerage. Uh, before Credit Suisse, we had Deutsche Bank, who also exited Prime Brokerage. Um, you know, they shed parts of their fixed income business. If we went back to several years prior, there was a lot of the European players getting out of FIC. And, you know, keep in mind, it is a scale business. And I think where banks like JP Morgan um, have been winning, and in fact, Goldman Sachs, who has gained the most market share over the last several years, are that they are investing in technology that helps them get better revenue, that helps them have more money to invest. And so it's really that virtuous cycle that um, some of those big U.S. banks have been enjoying. And before we let you go, let's talk about you cover everything. A KKR doing particularly well also. What's driving some of these private equity guys to outperform at this point? I think, you know, if you look at the asset management industry, right, like the, the two areas of growth are private markets and uh, passive. The big difference is that private markets has very significant fees. And since you've seen these big companies go public, I mean, the fundraising is just impressive. Mm -hmm. Great stuff. Allison is the yeah, best. She is, absolutely. I wonder who hired her. Allison Williams. Senior oh, Atmos Global Banks. That's Should never I pat get him old, on the back there? or you want to exactly. do it yourself? Exactly. That's <laughs> patting myself on the back there. Uh, no, but she's the best. Allison Williams, Senior Analyst Global Banks. Bloomberg Intelligence. Before she came to Bloomberg Intelligence to cover banks, she was at Morgan Stanley Investment Management on the buy side Amazing. as a senior analyst covering banks there for all their big funds. I, so. I just don't know, like, all these banks have different business models, and I do not understand how you keep them all straight. Like, at least yeah. oil companies, like, they dig for stuff and they get <laughs> yes, it out of the ground. Like, they stuff, may dig yeah. in different places, but it's it's pretty straightforward. I mean, I'm, you know, back in college, I wrote a paper on who uh, the five biggest investment banks in 25 years, who, who they were going to be. One of them was Deutsche Bank. Uh -huh. And for a while, I was looking really good there yeah. until not so much. Although, I mean, we thought they weren't going to survive 2016. So yeah. we thought we were all like beating the drum to total bankruptcy or someone buying it like, you know, 
Yep. UBS or Unicredit, yeah, and that just, didn't happen. So, no. and you just look at the uh, the European banks, and they they just haven't evolved with the times. The the, the governments haven't allowed cross border uh, consolidation, mm -hmm. and so the net result is in this global world, they're nowhere. I mean, nowhere. Deutsche Bank, UBS, uh, they're regional banks now, and yeah. it's a shame because I, you know, uh, there was a time when you really thought that they could become a global financial institutions. Um, so we'll have to see. Now it's up to the J.P. Morgans and Goldman's and the Morgan Stanley's yeah. of the world. So uh, good stuff. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. The FAA Administrator Mike Whitaker is on Capitol Hill today, um, and he'll be talking about the latest Boeing news and how the FAA is going to have a little bit more oversight. And just to add some some color to this, Spirit Aerospace is on their earnings call right now. They weren't able to give guidance because of what's going on with Boeing. Um, and they say that their goal, yay, is to have zero production deficits. That's good goal. Thank you. They say they're fully aligned with, blow, with Boeing. They plan to have more automation of some manual tasks. They've added inspectors, assessed plug sequence with Boeing, like they're doing all the right stuff. And they have made progress, they say, in stabilizing the 737 production in the fourth quarter. So what does this all mean? Like, do we want FAA regulators, like, getting involved more with more Boeing planes? Is it, is it better? Is it worse? They were already involved. It's yeah. confusing. I don't know. I don't know. But George Ferguson, he, he knows. Might know. He might know. He covers all this aerospace and airline stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence. George, what's the latest here? It, it, what changes do you think may come to the FAA, may come to Boeing? Uh, so, uh, you know, what we heard from Whitaker uh, in, in some of his initial comments was that uh, rather than auditing Boeing safety, they're going to have a you know, physical presence on the line and that they would push some of that presence down into Spirit Aerosystems. I suppose that means they'd push it also into other suppliers. I mean, I frankly think it's a good thing, right? I think that clearly right now the way the system is, is set up, it's not working well. Uh, you know, we've talked about it. We've, I think it's, you know, largely due to uh, turnover, uh, you know, as we went through the pandemic. I think we've lost a lot of talent at these companies. Um, but so clearly we're having a breakdown in the manufacturing process. And I think, you know, the FAA is here to regulate. And, you know, I think this is something that uh, puts the long-term health of the U.S. aerospace business at risk. And they're here to help protect that, right? And so putting them down on the line, I think, is a positive. It may slow things down, but I think you know for for a good reason, so that you, you get quality through there, and 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 folks can trust the products coming out of Boeing and uh, other U.S. aerospace suppliers. Um, why weren't FAA regulars already there and have a physical presence? Well, so I mean, I, I think they were largely handling things from an audit standpoint, right? Reviewing processes and uh, and certification. I, I think that they're. You know, they've been stressed thin through the pandemic as well. They, they haven't had enough, uh, uh, you know, workers as well, a lot of turnover. And I, I think also, I think this business was a simpler business if you go back 20 or 30 years ago. I know that's a long way to go, especially I when I'm talking to people with financial markets. <laughs> yeah. But if you go back 20, 30 years ago, this just, the supply chains didn't stretch as far. They were a lot, a lot more domestically focused a lot more vertically integrated, and that's been changed dramatically over the last number of years. And I think Boeing got on the cutting edge of that when they built the 787, and I think that's created you know, some challenges here. And now I think you know, the regulator, as well as the manufacturer, has to figure out 
how they can manage such a far-flung supply chain and make sure quality comes through uh, on the line. So I think the world's a little bit different and that's one of the reasons why it's changing. What's that mean for you know, the economics of Boeing? I mean, there's a school of thought out there that you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago, they kind of maybe made the choice to focus a little bit more on shareholders than maybe on the engineering of the company, engineering pedigree, and that's arguably worked out well for shareholders. Is there a sense that they maybe went too far and might have to kind of retrench a little bit? I think they, I think there is a sense that they went too far, right? If you know, I remember uh, going to meetings with the old CEO McNerney and even Muhlenberg a couple CEOs ago, and you know they'd get into the uh, you know the meeting with the analysts and talk about how they had a cash generating machine, and I think that's really great, you know. But at the end of the day, these are engineering businesses and manufacturing businesses, and I think they've got to you know look again at investing in the people that build these aircraft. It's not. It's not like an auto plant where you have a lot of capital equipment in there. You know, you've got robotics, you've got um, jigs and everything like that that will really help support um, workers that maybe aren't as, as you know, trained as an aerospace worker. Aerospace has a lot less of that. The volumes are lower. The work is a lot, a lot more, um, you know, it can, be, it can be complex. It can be very uh, specific, so much so that you can't get a capital tool on it or machine on it. And so you really need a, a seasoned workforce there, well-trained workforce, uh, and I think that's where they need to be, right? They need to get reinvested back in that workforce and in that process. I have a really dumb question, so excuse the dumb question. Why is it so hard? Like, I understand that building big things that carry people is difficult, but doing it well shouldn't be hard for a Boeing and an Airbus. They're the only two guys who do it. So, like, where have they gone so wrong they had to sort of drill down this much. Well, I guess I would say it's so hard because the tolerances are so tight, right? Meaning okay. you can't make a mistake in this business, right? We, you and I go to work, I can make a problem in a spreadsheet, it's okay, I'll probably figure it out in a couple hours or something like that. You can make a bad car and when it breaks down, you pull it to the side of the road and you get the tow truck, it's not the end of the day. <laughs> this, is, this is a zero tolerance for defects business and that means every little miss is noticed. And that's why I think it's so hard. Fair so enough. Is, is Boeing, are they taking new orders now? How is it day to day for them? Are they still? Their backlog's still huge, selling I stuff? Think, yeah. right? I mean, they're absolutely open for business taking orders. Um, I haven't seen uh, m many orders flow through lately. I have heard some customers like Ryanair that are always looking for a good deal say <laughs> that if anybody doesn't want their airplanes, they're willing to take them. But I mean, on the sales side, absolutely, I think it, it, they're open for business. And on the manufacturing side, that's the, the challenge here too, is they're not going to shut it down. Mm -hmm. They're building at a 38 rate. Um, they've got to they've do that as well as possible while improving it. Uh, and then, you know, we're going to wait and see what the FAA, what changes the FAA may want as they get involved here. But they're still running the business while they try to make these improvements. Because, I mean, for an airliner, for example, like you put in orders and it's like years in advance, right? So like they kind of have to stay in the queue. But if the deliveries are pushed out, what airlines have enough of like old planes that they can still do the stuff? Yeah, so uh, the Global Airline fleet, like I could take the next couple hours to talk you through it, but- You got like 90 um, seconds? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of them that have older fleet that can, that can rely on it. Right now, there's been no change to Boeing's build strategy. They're building at the 38 that they broke to 
at the end of last year. And if this FAA, you know, analysis takes longer than six months, maybe we get into a situation where Boeing can't go to the next build rate that they had they had projected as they you know told customers they could have airplanes. I could tell you that there's a lot of folks, a lot of airlines in the world that expected airplanes, even from Airbus, at certain dates, that are having to push some of those out and and make you know uh, make provisions with either lessors or using older fleets so that they can cover the schedule they want to fly. So this is not just a Boeing issue with sort of managing not having airplanes ready. All right, George, thanks so much uh, for joining us again. George uh, Ferguson, Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst, uh, Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, on the Zoom cam from uh, Bloomberg's headquarters down in Princeton, New Jersey. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. 
a bad day for President Trump and his legal team. Can you put this in context for us? Sure, yes. It's a speed bump in in his legal journey, I guess you could call it. Um, he the a three-judge panel of the DC Circuit Court of Appeals, which is a actually the US Circuit Court of Appeals based in DC has ruled that Trump's argument that he is immune from criminal prosecution because he was president when he was allegedly committing these crimes related to the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, that his argument is wrong, that he has no immunity and he can indeed be prosecuted. Um, Trump has just said that he was going to appeal that decision and that would go to the full U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, and then presumably on to the Supreme Court if he doesn't like the answer from the nine judges. Um, Wendy, do you think that it will get to the Supreme Court? We were debating whether or not they would take it up if it got there. It's, it's always hard to tell what the Supreme Court will do. I have no doubt that if the nine judge panel agrees with the three judge panel that Trump will appeal it all the way to the Supreme Court. And it's one of those basic fundamental constitutional questions that frankly the Supreme Court would probably be interested in taking up because it will determine once and for all whether a president has immunity. Now a president, um, we've never faced this before, first of all. Um, but also, Trump is arguing, based on a 1982 Supreme Court decision, that in civil cases, a president is immune from civil lawsuits for acts he took as president. But a civil lawsuit and a criminal indictment are two very different things. So lots of questions here. One of them is just timing, Wendy. Do we have any framework for how the one, possibly two, appeals would take? We don't. Um, he has, uh, former President Trump has until Monday to file an appeal or to say he's going to appeal, I think. Um, so he has till Monday to do that. Uh, then we don't know how long it would take the full court to decide and then the Supreme Court may or may not take its time, depending on how complicated the issue is. I like to think that these courts would not act based on politics, um, and there's no reason to think they would. So they may just see the case as easy and decide quickly, or they may decide to take more time. Mm -hmm. But either way, the clock is ticking toward the November election. W Wendy, l let's just play it out for a second. So let's just say that this sticks in whatever way, and he's not granted criminal immunity. Um, then what? Like, does that, what does that do to the, to the November election? Well, what it does do is allow Jack Smith, the Justice Department's special prosecutor, to move forward with his case charging Trump with responsibility for the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol in 2021. And Jack Smith says he's ready to go and would like to do this case quickly. So presumably, if the courts act in time and the question of immunity is settled so that a trial can can go forward, then we could be looking at a trial on that case before the election. So is there any consensus in Washington about how this will play out here? Because it doesn't seem very good for the former president, just from my read, which is totally uninformed. <laughs> well, it's not. Um, it, it doesn't look like it's going to be good for the president. The, the laws are pretty clear, and the argument that Trump is basing his 
appeal on that he's immune from civil lawsuits has no application to the criminal statutes. So, you know, it doesn't look like it's going to get any better the higher up he mm -hmm. goes in the in the judicial system. But one Wendy? never knows. Different judges see different things. Wendy, how does this play within with voters? Because clearly his base is going to assume that he's being unfairly prosecuted anyway. So that in some ways helps the base. We see every time there's a new indictment, he gets a lo load of fundraising money. So who does this actually sway in terms of voters? This doesn't sway, well, it doesn't sway voters either way. People who don't like Donald Trump think he should be prosecuted. People who, a lot of Trump supporters do believe that this is politically motivated. They, they buy his, his line and campaign rallies that this is a quote unquote witch hunt. And so this is just another step in that road toward that. However, our recent Bloomberg News Morning Consult poll published last week said that 53% of voters in the important swing states would not vote for Trump if he were convicted of a crime. And that includes one in four Republican voters in swing states. So if he is convicted, that really could damage his reelection prospects. All right, Wendy, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you for jumping on with, with us. Wendy uh, Ben Jamison of Bloomberg Washington, senior editor uh, on that story. I don't know. I think anything's going to get so political, it's going to be so hard to see the forest and the trees. Yeah, I just don't know how the timing is going to work and uh, just a lot of hurdles there. But uh, moving forward, I guess, uh, is kind yeah. of the story. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business App. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. David Bonson joins us here. He's the Chief Investment Officer for the Bonson Group. David, again, John Tucker was looking for some theme to talk about here in this market. I don't see a lot here. we got a ton of earnings going on out there, but... It seems to be everybody's just kind of waiting on the Fed. I, you know, I don't know. What, what are you guys? What are you guys looking for in terms of direction in this marketplace? I always am looking for company earnings and actual activities from the businesses we invest in. In other words, a day like today is the way it's supposed to be. You know, the market's <laughs> trading around the size of the briefcase Jay Powell carries to a press conference. It strikes me as very unhealthy. <laughs> market's trading around Simon Property having a blockbuster earnings result last night. Now that makes a lot of sense. So you see uh, uh, the largest mall operator in the country up 4.5% today. It was a name I talked about with you guys yep. last time I was here. Um, that You know, we're bottom-up people. We're, we're markets are businesses doing things kind of people. I'd like to see less of the obsession with J-PAL, quite frankly. Okay, so then what do you like? Like what's working bottom-up? I think bottom-up, you have to look at the spaces that are not overvalued, even though some of those overvalued names have done well. It's not been the quarter everyone seems to think it has for MAG-7. But Tesla's gotten crushed, and, and uh, Microsoft had you know good results, but not a great stock result. Uh, Facebook had a huge upswing yep, yep. on a dividend announcement. It's been very mixed. We're looking at things like consumer staples that we think are showing their pricing power. 
growing dividends. And if it is going to be a boring year, uh, that will be a good thing for but sectors But does that mean like that. that you sell tech or you just don't want to buy them here? Well, for us, we don't have to worry about selling it because we didn't buy it to begin with. And so, you, so you don't own any of the big mag seven or six? Not a single one. And so that's Ooh. why our- Is that a valuation call, David? Or? It's totally valuation totally. call. Okay. These are seven of the best run companies in history that have done extremely well. And they have a blended negative return over the last two years. And I don't think people realize that because 2023 was so good, yep. but it was mostly just offsetting what was so bad in 22. And we think that's what it's going to do. That's what companies that trade at 30, 35, 40 times. You know, Facebook right now has a higher forward multiple than it does backward after exactly. last yep. week. That's yep. just crazy. So what do you, when you, how do you screen for stocks? What's important to you guys at the Bonson? Dividend growth. So it starts with companies that have a dividend higher than the S&P. Generally, we want 100 basis points or so higher than the S&P, but then a track record of growing the dividend. From there, that's the screen, as you asked. Yep. Then we start doing our work. Then we have to research. We want management that's committed to the dividend, committed to growing it year over year. They can only do so if they have a company that has recurring free cash flow. So if the free cash flow or the business model itself lends itself to lumpy earnings, it may not be a good dividend payer. It has to have a strong balance sheet. It's a little bit more boring. You get a lot in healthcare. You know why we did so well last year was financials. The mm -hmm. asset managers, Blackstone was up over 80%. Apollo and Blue Owl were up 50%. Even though consumer staples and healthcare were laggards last year, but again, on a two-year basis, they're beating everything else because 2022 mattered. So that's our approach, and, and we don't try to time in and out of it. Um, I don't know if NVIDIA is going up another 50% or not. I do know if it does, it's multiple expansion. And we do not invest on multiple expansion. We invest on free cash flow growth. Do you like big oil? Well, I love oil, small, little, medium, and big. Um, but in, oh, you found a frontier. The, yeah, we th I think that I think that that's where you get the great dividend growth. That's what I was asking. And, and I think that week. the Biden administration policies are very favorable to big oil and very unfavorable to small oil. They're not allowing a lot of new projects, which makes the projects that Exxon and Chevron already have in the ground much more valuable. Make enables them to go buy Hess and Pioneer respectively, and their Permian market share is just exploding. So both Chevron and uh, Exxon, we think, are great plays, but they're not our biggest energy exposure. It's midstream. Mm -hmm. So we own an ETF. The ticker is UMI. It's actively managed, has about 18 different pipeline names, export LNG terminals, but it's actively managed around that midstream energy infrastructure story. Last year, energy was down a couple percent. Exxon was down a little. Chevron was down nine. Midstream was up 16%. The MLPs were up 25% for the third year in a row. So we, we do like the midstream energy story. What gets you to sell a name? Is it they cut the mm -hmm. dividend or they just say they start doing stuff that might put the dividend at Tricking risk? Cash flow or something? Yeah. Yeah, yeah they're, they're, those are all good answers. It, can, it could be opportunity costs. There was a company, Cardinal Health, we bought yeah. for about 50 bucks. It's in a fantastic dividend grower. It got to 110. They continued growing the dividend. They were executing. But at that point, we got five years of return in one year and we just exited simply to be able to pursue better opportunities. Uh, we're selling MetLife today, as a matter of fact. And that's a name we've owned for a few years. But it's a company that is not growing its dividend in cash, but it is growing at dividends per share. So we're getting more dividends per share, but they're just paying the same amount because they're buying back so much stock. Uh, we, when they're buying back three times as much stock mm. as they are paying dividend, we don't like that. But when you, your question about if they cut the dividend, do we sell it? It's our job to not let that happen. We need okay. to be in front of companies that will cut the dividend. And some of the sort of career-making moments for me were deciding, 
against the grain to sell companies we believed were at risk of cutting the dividend ended up being right so later. So how do you identify those companies? You just see their free cash flows maybe s slowing or? Yeah, my favorite story of all time is 2007 Citigroup when they continued to pay the dividend and then were borrowing $12 billion from right. Saudi Arabia. You say, <laughs> right. you know, I, this is, doesn't look right to me. And right. I think, yeah, when free cash flow goes negative and the dividend keeps going, then they're basically taking advance on the credit card to pay the dividend. So do you get heat from investors, though, in terms of not buying, not being in big tech and being in big oil? Because that's like the reverse of what the cool, trendy thing, ESG thing is. Um, that's a really good question, but we actually don't take heat for it. But a lot of that has to do with self-selection of the client base. The types of people that like working with us might be more predisposed to that. But also, we're incredibly communicative. We explain why. it isn't. It, it, there's a certain ideological bend in this. Obviously, there is on the ESG side. Mm -hmm. For us, we really believe we have a fiduciary duty to find the right investment opportunities for clients. I'm not against big tech ideologically. I'm against big tech not returning cash to shareholders. I think that uh, it is absolutely inexcusable that Apple is paying tip money out to investors <laughs> when, when they're making more cash in, in a year than most of the S&P makes in, in a lifetime. It's just, um, to me, it's an unfair treatment of shareholders, but I understand the argument. Um, you know, there's always people who ask about it, but look, Netflix was up 1,000% last decade, and it gave back all of that return in about six months in 2022. So I'm a child of the 90s. I grew up beginning investing money professionally in the 90s. I saw what happened. Cisco today is sitting around 50 dollars it was 80 dollars in 1999 and it's one and it's grown earnings and profits and revenues every year it's executed perfectly it was just plain overpriced and when you buy something that overpriced you risk decades of lost return mm -hmm. we're just unwilling to take it that risk so what's what do you think is a what's a dividend yield that screens well for you? Do you is it by industry by company or do you say I need at least a two and a half percent yield or something like that? Yeah, I mean universally we tend to want about two and a half just to start, but there's some sectors where that wouldn't be nearly enough. The portfolio blends to about a four handle yield, okay. and that's more than double the S and P. Um, and so you're going to end up with some higher yielding names, Simon Property, Lamar Advertising. Oh, These I are, love Lamar. Took on public. It's a wonderful, wonderful the company. O'Reilly Brothers. Wonderful company. You talk about shareholder alignment. Family owns so much of yep. it. They're going the dividend every year. Our midstream energy stuff is over 5% yield. So you get some higher yielding names. You're going to have lower yielding names on some of these ones that it's just priced in. You know, McDonald's, I think we talked yep. about last time. That's a lower yield now only because we're up 600% since we bought the stock. Same for Walmart. Walmart uh, went public the same year I was born. They've grown the dividend every <laughs> single year. So you end up with a a lower yield right now but our yield on walmart and mcdonald's is like 40 percent on purchase we're getting 40 percent year over year from what oh. we bought the stock at that's what the whole point of dividend growth is i just have like based up 30 seconds right are you competing with money market funds in terms of getting money and clients? No, uh, you're always competing with the risk-free rate in, in um, the fact that people have to bench it against something, mm -hmm. but they're not people saying, I'm considering either money market or a dividend portfolio. It's a totally different risk profile. It's true in a macroeconomic sense, but it's never true in a microeconomic sense. Hmm. Good stuff. How's the weather out in your, your neck here of the world? Here we go, I well, knew this Well, here's the thing, coming. I'm sitting here in Manhattan, the sun's out, it's beautiful, it's a little chilly. 
California having the worst rainstorm that they've seen, which of course there people wouldn't even, you know, around the country they wouldn't consider it a storm, but in Newport they'll probably end up canceling school for a month. Or well, something. I saw some of the video coming. It looks really bad. It's pretty bad. They've gotten a lot of rain. It's um, a little worse inland, but yeah, they, you know, we get this like once every hundred years. Yeah. All right. Some good, hopefully good snow up in, in Tahoe for the skiers. Uh, David Bonson, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. David Bonson, uh, Chief Investment Officer, Bonson Group. Uh, dividend yields. That's one of the many reasons we like to talk to David because it's a strategy we don't hear enough about. It's true. So, but and also uh, so just how the risk profile is factored in when you take a look at the S&P dividend yield and sort of how to manage that. Yep. I think that's interesting. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Bloomberg Intelligence, where we're going to tap all our analysts that cover about 2,000 companies and 130 industries uh, that we cover worldwide. But we're going to tap someone else right now in the ETF world uh, for her take on the market. And that's Sylvia Jablonski, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer at Defiance ETFs. Uh, great perspective on sort of what the trends are in the market and what people are doing with their money. Uh, Sylvia, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. What are you seeing most right now? as we're sort of in the second month of the year after a very bizarre four weeks. <laughs> Hi, Alex. Great to see you. Yeah, I mean, it definitely has been a very bizarre four weeks. What's really interesting, and I think what's what's pretty good, is that some of the positive momentum that we had towards the end of the year has continued into this year. And that blip on the radar that we saw those first couple of days in, you know, have kind of just faded to the wayside. So what we're seeing on our side is just this continued, you know, exuberance and, and excitement about the AI trade. Um, most of the flows that we've seen have come into that space. So quantum computing types of stocks, AI stocks, machine learning, kind of an expansion of that ecosystem. So before it was just NVIDIA and AMD, and now people are sort of looking at companies like Palantir, who you just mentioned had, um, uh, you know, a great earnings report and Taiwan Semiconductor, you know, IonQ, IBM, some of these other players in the AI space. And it's it's just been, you know, off to the races there. All right. One of my favorite ETFs out there is a Defiance ETF, C-R-U-Z. I'm fascinated with the cruise business, the economics of the cruise business. And I actually even may <laughs> go on a cruise coming up very soon. It's Pete Cruise now, I feel I'm like. I'm being pitched. Yeah, indicator. it's Pete Cruise when, mm -hmm. I, when I go on it. Um, Sylvia, what, what do you see in that industry these days? What are the drivers? Yeah, so I, I think it's been really interesting to watch the cruise business and, and what happened during COVID is everybody, you know, vividly remembers the cruise business just came to an absolute halt and just took on so much debt and, and it was just a complete disaster, right? And, and and I think we're at the point now, just listening to these last earnings calls where, you know, you had this, the CEO of um, Carnival, of Royal Caribbean, you know, even the outlooks from Norwegian, you know, the, the spending is back. And what they're saying is that they have more cruises booked for 2024 than they did pre-pandemic, finally. Um, the average consumer is spending a lot more, you know, sort of finally, and they're able to kind of like reduce their debt and have stronger profit margins and and things like this. So I think the reason that that's holding up, the whole travel trade in general is holding up because the economy is holding up, right? The consumer remains strong. Um, that wage growth, you know, 4% number, good, good jobs numbers, inflation is coming down. The Fed is eventually going to stop hiking. And I think that you know, people feel like they can still spend a little bit, right? And that transition from goods to, to services and travel and experiences, I mean, it's it's continued to forge ahead. So have we seen at the same time, pivoting off of that theme, the money kind of coming out of money market funds and into stocks in that like, yeah, things are getting better, 
rates will go down, albeit the last couple of days we've seen a nice uh, move up higher in yields. But I'm going to go put my money to work in economically sensitive stocks. They're actually going to benefit because things are going to get better. Rates will come down. Are we seeing this flow happen yet? No, and you make you make a really great point there, right? You think with the the performance that we saw in the S and P five hundred and in Nasdaq last year in particular, um, that that money would be just really piling off of the sidelines. And I think it's going to be a slow trickle in. You know, you still have you still have a lot of clients out there and investors that probably have you know things like CDs or instruments that mature at certain times, and and they'll kind of scale back into the market when that happens. But I also think that you know once you see a year like 2022 and like probably every investor or many of the investors that went to cash held all the you know all the tech stocks and just got hammered down 30 40 percent so they they didn't catch it this year it's just kind of you know behavioral finance a little bit there but i do think that that money will eventually come off the sidelines i mean look at the end of the day you're never going to get rich in, in treasuries right i mean unless you're worth multi-millions of dollars i guess but i think for the average investor that has a longer term time horizon that 10% annualized return on the S&P 500 plus these kind of like gravy years where you hold a little bit of semiconductors and tech and get some outperformance. I mean, that's that's wealth building, right? So I, I do think it'll eventually kind of pile back in and then it'll matter for markets. Then then you'll start to see a little bit of a tailwind there too. Uh, I asked this, Paul, because like I'm totally talking my own book. Like sure. four months ago, put some money in, in, in three month T-bills. That was yeah. an easy call. Yep. Those three months are up. I don't know. We're, we're oh, like now. Risk. Now what do oh. we do? Right. Yeah, now so what? <laughs> I think you go long meta. But like I'm the kind of person Microsoft. that wants to like put gold bars and soup cans under my bed, right? So so it's a, I, I asked to talk my book, but also I, I really am curious as to like people like me, of which I'm sure there are many, who how they make those decisions, Paul. I don't know. I mean, I I would hire a professional or go buy an S and P. 500 ETF. Let's just be, let's be honest. Let's just here. be honest. All right, sit so, there for a while. So yeah, I saw <laughs> one of the names on your list that you recently were adding was IBM. Old school tech. What's the thought there? Yeah. So interestingly enough, the old school tech company that everybody kind of forgets about is is one of the you know the the best kind of leaders with the most experience in AI. You know, Watson X has been around before, probably before AI was a word, right? So they were kind of the first ones doing it. Yep. They spent tons of money in R and D. They it's just they've been hiding under a rock and they don't kind of get the fanfare of the the other companies, but they have one of the most powerful hybrid AI models out there. They partner with on the video with a lot of stuff. So if, if you just kind of like, you know, do, look at their website and see what they're doing, for example, now they're working with Korea Quantum to, to use supercomputing and AI to better target potential attacks for, for defense purposes. Now, think about what's going on in the world, right? Just just every day what we have going on in the middle east russia and ukraine you know the, the the iran strikes the other day i mean this information is so highly valuable that you can't imagine that there won't be a lot of government spending going into this and then not to mention you know smart cities electric cars healthcare, all the just tech in general right all the stuff we usually talk about but there's a huge need for this and ibm is really a leader there sylvia what what is verboten what do you not like um, what do I not like? Um, so I, you know, I, I think that, I, I think that like, it'll take a while for the small caps to really start to rally. It's not like, it's not that I don't like them. It's just that, um, I think I'm allocating more towards the names that are moving, which, which right now are going to be, you know, kind of tech semiconductor, like some of the consumer stuff. Um, I, I like healthcare, you know, all these weight loss drugs and things like that. I mean, <laughs> look at um, Lily earnings this morning, they're taking off. So, you know, I'm just not going to allocate too much to utilities and I'll probably wait a little bit to get into small caps. 
Um, and, and, you know, again, I don't think they're bad investments because I do think breath will expand, but I just think there's a little bit more of ROI in, in you know, kind of the, the, the tech sector for now and semiconductors. So in your ETF business, Sylvia, where are you seeing the flows these days? So we have seen, you know, two places really. One is, again, that quantum AI trade, right? We, we for one of our ETFs, are, are, is at the highest level it's ever been quantum just because people are interested in that theme. Um, and then there has been so much flow for, for Defiance and for our competitors in income ETF products. So ETF products that use different types of options strategies to generate income for investors. So we have like put right strategies where you know, we have S&P exposure and we sell puts to generate income. Other companies are doing it on single name stocks and things like that. So there have just been billions of dollars pouring into that um, enhanced income space. And the idea there is like, you get a little bit of upset. It's almost, you know, Alex to like, what do you do, right? So you get a little bit of that index exposure, but you're still just getting your, you're still just getting income. So you kind of have this like guaranteed income and then, you know, some portion of equity returns. So you have a smoother ride than if you just invested in the index, for example. So it's kind of like, tapping back in um, from from treasuries trade. So not what Paul said. Don't do the index fund, but not the gold bars in the soup can. Yeah, so, you I, well, know. you know, what, what Paul said plus. <laughs> so what Paul said plus exactly. a, maybe a little less downside if, if there's a black swan event, but you know, it's it can go either way, right? If the markets just completely rally, I mean, S&P and, and NASDAQ, they don't usually serve you wrong, so. <laughs> Good stuff. Hey, Sylvia, thanks so much for joining us there. Sylvia Jablonski, Chief Executive Officer Chief Investment Officer does it all does for it Defiant all. ETFs, uh, joining us via Zoom from uh, New York City here. This is the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live each weekday, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, tune in, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also watch us live every weekday on YouTube and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.